First day of spring, and we're still digging out from one of our biggest snowstorms. Interesting weather all winter long. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi for another rip-snorting conversation. Let's go. Are environmentalist fears misplaced about Ohio Senate President Matt Huffman's plan for oil and gas drilling on state lands? Laura, I read this story and I'm trying to figure out, is this devastating to the state lands and state parks? Is the reaction people are having more strong than is warranted? What's going on here? Well, the folks who want to be able to do this, and remember the green energy bill that we've talked about at length on this podcast, the natural gas is green energy, that included the ability to drill on state parks. And they'd always had that, and it's drilling under the state parks, to be clear. They, they say that the machinery will not be on the actual park. It's not like there'll be an oil rig next to your campsite, but they would be accessing the oil and gas reserves underneath it. And what that bill did was it changed from shall to can, basically can. So they no longer did the ODNR have to go through a long process to say, okay, maybe you can, maybe you can't uh, drill, but you are allowed to now. I think it's from may to shall. That's the verb change. And so they say, this is, this is perfectly fine. It'll be perfectly safe. No problem. But hey, let's use this to offset the tax cuts we want to give to the wealthiest Ohioans. And that's where the issue, well, I mean, I think we, separately we can talk about the environmental impact and what that's going to be like, because we don't actually know. And I think it's worth sounding alarm about some of our most pristine natural spaces in this entire state. But do we want to start drilling underneath state parks just so we can give rich people a big a, a big tax cut it just seems like ohio's priorities are so messed up here it's like trying to solve a labor shortage on the backs of 14 year olds all right let, let, let there's three things going on here and I, let's take them individually one the story shows how you're never going to solve a budget issue with this that i mean there are multiple people in the story and saying that's a ridiculous ridiculous idea. So Matt Huffman saying he's going to solve a budget problem with this. That's bogus. Two, the let's put aside that Ohio is terrible at green energy. It is. the, the They haven't repealed HB6 completely, the corrupt, filthy law, because it did away with important green energy standards. And yes, you're right. The governor has signed the bill saying that natural gas is green energy, which is ridiculous in the extreme. And they're all trying to stand by it and will forever be talking about it. It makes Ohio look like chumps on the issue of drilling on the parks and state lands. I guess I wasn't aware before that they would never actually have the equipment on the state lands, that it would come from private lands and drill down at an angle into the parks. Given all of the the controversy we had about oil in the past couple of years, is it a terrible thing to try and extract whatever the, the value is from under those parks if you don't in any way damage the parks? But how I don't know that you can say that. I don't think you can promise we're not damaging the parks because you don't know the long-term consequences. All the fracking, we've I mean, we've been talking about fracking now for 15 years. And the fact is, we don't know what they put underground to do the fracking when they're injecting all of that liquid into the earth to try to get the minerals out. They don't it's trade secret. They don't have to tell you. We don't know the long-term implications of the water and I, I just think it's really risky 
just to say, we'll make some money on it. Is this involved fracking or is it just- Yes, they the- talked about fracking. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. So you could have earthquakes in yes, the parks. Yes, absolutely. Like you could have a big crevice down the middle of, you know, whatever park. I don't think they're talking about drilling in the middle of Hocking Hills, you know, with under a pristine waterfall. And they really want the east side of the state, right? Um, where the the shale is, where the reserves are, that that large swaths of unleased minerals in eastern and southeastern Ohio. But there are all sorts of possibilities for pollutants. It would be nice if they had a comprehensive energy plan. If they want to do something like this, why aren't we talking about wind farms and solar and all the other ways that Ohio could be a leader in green energy and instead? Because those people most... have not given enough money to politicians, probably. Yeah, and we're just one of the most backward states on this issue that, that exists. It's amazing that, that Intel and some others are coming here knowing that. Right. And it's worth saying again that this tax cut they want to give, 2.75%, that would end up really hurting all the libraries, the school districts, the local governments, the parks districts, just to give a tax cut. Another tremendous story out of our Statehouse Bureau. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. And you're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, what are the potential options for the future of the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office, which has been controversial for years, partly because of all the deaths in the jail, partly because of the debate about who oversees the sheriff? We've had so many sheriffs, I can't keep track. So what what's ahead? This this is a brewing debate among county officials and council members. After we saw the sixth sheriff resign since the new form of government began, what, 10, 12 years ago, There have been calls among some top county officials to restore the sheriff to an elected position accountable to the voters, someone who's autonomous from the county executive and has the power to run the jail as they see fit. Because the the argument is that the the sheriff under the charter is is just a pawn of the executive whose goals for the jail might run counter to what the sheriff believes to be in the best interest of that institution. So you're going to have high turnover of disgruntled sheriffs in that job, as we've seen, and you're going to have a heck of a time finding good candidates for that position as we've seen. So while that conversation has been percolating, we recently saw Councilman Marty Sweeney propose legislation that seeks to clarify who the sheriff reports to under the charter. And that sparked a debate among council members about whether the sheriff should report directly to Chris Ronane, the executive, or through one of his designees. And then separately, (laughs) another faction of council, Patrick Kelly and Michael Gallagher, they've proposed competing legislation to make the sheriff an independent office like the county's internal audit and inspector general offices. Under that model, the sheriff wouldn't be beholden to counsel or the executive, though the person would still be required to provide quarterly reports. It would also give the sheriff the authority to restructure and staff the jail however the sheriff wants to without having to get permission from the executive, which is now required. So Gallagher is a big proponent of having an elected sheriff, but in the absence of that possibility, he feels that this legislation will get the county closer to that that model. Council's Public Safety and Justice Affairs Committee is going to have a hearing on that tomorrow. And Chris Renane is is uh, he's watching this debate. He hasn't decided or he hasn't indicated anyway how he feels about it. Well, I, I don't think the Gallagher amendment would be legal under the charter. That's not what voters went to the Mm. polls to do. The voters said, and this was clear as could be, in the new form of government, 
the executive would appoint all these folks. And ostensibly, they should report up to the executive. The county council was just supposed to be the oversight board. What Gallagher would basically do is have the sheriff respond to the county council. It doesn't say that, but the county council is the only body that can remove the sheriff. And so this would tacitly make the sheriff answer to the county council. That is not what voters wanted. This county council is out of control rogue right now, trying to glom onto powers that were never envisioned. They, well, they, I don't it, think I don't think that this proposal, though, would I mean, it can't make the sheriff an elected position. It still no. is an appointed position. But uh, yeah, that's not what the proposal is seeking. I think it's just seeking to make it an independent office, yeah. even though it's appointed. I don't think somehow. you can do that in the charter. I think the charter right now says the executive does the appointing. Look, if, what Gallagher should do, create the, the legislation to put it on the ballot. The council can put a charter change on the ballot, put it on the ballot put on the ballot to elect the sheriff. I think there's very uniform agreement now that that should happen. A lot of people that were opposed to it even two years ago have switched and there's growing consensus that that's a good idea. So don't do this intermediate step, which may not be legal. Just do it. Put it on the ballot. We could vote on it in November and end this crisis. Until yeah, then. That, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say there is a groundswell of support for that idea. I mean, County Prosecutor Michael Malley's been pretty vocal about it. Administrative Judge Brendan Sheehan, too. They're both pushing for an elective sheriff. And apparently there's there's a grassroots movement in favor of it as well. There's a petition circulating on change.org that has about 500 signatures so far. So it, it does seem that this is, uh, you know, the idea is gaining momentum. And this is where Lisa can weigh in and say, I've been saying that for years. <laughs> I'm biting my tongue right now. I told you so, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, absent that, the Sweeney Amendment makes the most sense because it solidifies the structure that voters did put into place uh, 12 years ago. What a mess. It, the whole county government seems like it needs a, a huge reorganization again. The council has just gone completely off the rails in what voters intended. You know, I went back and was trying to look up what was happening in 2009 when we were voting on this in the first place, if there had been discussions about keeping the sheriff separate. I think the McFall controversy was scandal was so close in mind. That was never brought up as far as I could see in the archives. They had talked about making the public defender elected, but after a huge outswell of criticism that got shelved. Yeah. Look, what's clear is that running the sheriff's office from the county executive's office with all the other stuff that the executive has to do, it's too much. So put somebody answerable to the voters and everybody be required to be a law enforcement official now and like in the past and, and then move forward. My bet is that would win by a very large margin. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Members of the U.S. Congress who represent areas near the East Palestine train derailment introduced bipartisan legislation to rein in the rail companies and reduce the threats of future accidents. Lisa, this could actually pass. What do they propose? And this is interesting, too. We're seeing a lot of bipartisanship around the East Palestine explosion, which is kind of encouraging. But in, in the U.S. House, there's a bill called Reducing Accidents in Locomotives, or the Rail Act. It's sponsored by uh, Amelia Sykes, the Democrat from Akron, and the Republican from Marietta, Bill Johnson. So what this bill would do is it would increase maximum penalties for safety violations, increase inspections on all trains, including 
including those carrying hazmat, uh, increase funding for first responder training for hazardous materials, um, audit federal rail inspection programs, and direct the Federal Rail Administration to recommend changes to things like train length, weight over speed ratio, and track standards. So this was co-sponsored by the entire Democratic U.S. House delegation and included Republican members Max Miller, Dave Joyce, Mike Turner, Troy Balderson, and Mike Carey. Now there's a separate bill in the U.S. Senate that was sponsored by Ohio and uh, Pennsylvania senators. It's called the Railway Safety Act of 2023. These two bills are quite similar, although the Senate bill calls for specifically for two-person crews on trains and increasing uh, railroad fees to expand hazardous materials training. Yeah, it seems like this is really going to happen, that the rules will finally be in place. Some of the safety things that people have been calling for for years, it took this horrible derailment to bring it to the fore. And it's great to see that legislators on both sides of the aisle working together. That's rare. Very rare. And like like you said, I think this has a good chance of success because of that. All right. Good to see you listening to Today in Ohio. Northeast Ohio cherishes its parks, and the guy who runs them just received a lengthy contract extension, ensuring his guiding hand remains through some big projects. Laura, what are the details? This is CEO Brian Zimmerman. He has been at the helm since 2010, and he'll be there till at least 2034, thanks to the newest contract extension. So that's a long time to be in charge of the parks and a lot that he's gotten done. They've expanded the park system. They've added more than 60 miles of trails. They won two national awards for park management, attracted record crowds during the pandemic, 19 million visitors. If you think about some of the big stuff, it's been the $4.5 million beach house at Edgewater, the Tiger Passage at the Zoo, the Wendy Park Bridge. And over the next 10 years, they've got big plans. They want to improve the access to Lake Erie on the east side with that Cheers project, acquire 48 acres of the southern part of Gordon Park and, and create a better connection there, uh, connect downtown to Slavic Village, restore a historic pond in Garfield Park, and the zoo's primate forest. So Zimmerman was hired in 2010. His salary started at $145,000. He is now at $340,000, and there's some increases included over the next 10 years. But they will be asking the board about the bonuses. He could get an annual bonus of up to 10% of the base salary. That's at the discretion of the board. Look, I don't think anybody could challenge the fact Zimmerman has had a very good impact on the parks. The changes they've made, what they've done with the lakefront, um, it's all been for the for the best. He does make pretty good money, and one thing that they're terrible at is the public relations. Mm-hmm. Getting information out of those folks can be like reaching into the lion's mouth and pulling out food. So I hope they get better at that, but I think a lot of people will be glad to hear he's going to be around for a while. Will this put him at a longer length than his predecessor, Vern Hartenberg, or do we not know? I don't know the answer to that. I know that each contract extension he's gotten has gotten progressively longer. So this is 10 years is the most he's had. But yeah, I think you're right. I was actually surprised because the, you know, we got a news release, but his salary wasn't in it. And I was like, well, I I wonder if we'll still get that today. And we got that today, that day. And then we got the details about the contract with the raises. So they they were very forthcoming with that, which, you know, love to see. Keep it up. 
Yeah, it's more when something bad happens. Somebody gets robbed or some crime occurs in the mm-hmm. parks. Very, very dicey getting information. And they're a public agency completely supported by taxes. It's not their information. It's our information. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is there anything shady going on with Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Ronane's hiring of a county lobbyist without really seeking competitive proposals? Layla. Well, speaking of reaching into the lion's mouth to try to get an answer around here, uh, for the past week, reporter Lucas DiPrilli had been trying to get Ronane to address this issue. We even held the story back a day to try to give him a chance to answer the question squarely and to be as fair to him as possible. And instead, you know, the county dispatched a spokesperson to talk to Lucas, whose answers uh, to his questions were vague at best and, and really did nothing to improve the optics of this situation. But but here's what we know. So back in 2020, under Armin Budish, the county hired a federal lobbying firm for the first time. They hired Squ- Squire Patton Boggs, who is Cleveland-based but operates internationally. And they got a $225,000 contract for three years. The county at that time vetted nine potential firms before awarding that contract. That contract is set to expire in April. And instead of re-upping it, Ronane decided to go in a different direction. He recommended that the county board of control approve a $120,000 no-bid contract for federal lobbying services with McCauley and Company. That firm's president, Justin McCauley, just happened to have given Ronane's campaign $10,000 in contributions. And, you know, I just want to note here that this contract, even though it's, it's a lower value than the Squire Patton Boggs contract, but it's more lucrative for one year than, than the, uh, the other contract was. So I don't, I don't know what to tell you, Chris. I mean, Lucas asked all the right questions about this and the answers were very unsatisfactory. The spokesman said that they chose Macaulay over all possible firms, including Squire Patton Boggs, because Macaulay is well known and respected. And he told Lucas that they asked the Board of Control for an exemption from competitive bidding because that process could have lasted beyond April 19th when the Squire Patent Boggs contract is going to expire. And they wanted continuity in their lobbying services to maximize their chances at federal funding. Of course, that begs the question, if it's continuity you seek, why not just extend the Squire Patent Boggs contract until you're ready to rebid the contract? And the spokesman seemed kind of annoyed that we were calling with a follow-up question like that. He had no answer. He told Lucas, basically, ask again on Monday. So Yeah. What, what I find sad about this is we suspected all week that there's probably an explanation for this, that, that if Ronane talked to Lucas, would have altered the, the optics of this story. We even held the story. You guys came to me and said, what do we do? I mean, they just don't seem to be getting how bad this looks. And indeed it looks bad. And we heard from readers over the weekend saying, man, it's the same old, same old with the County, which may or may not be what's happening here. They just did a terrible job in talking. I mean, when Lucas called again Friday afternoon, you said yeah. that the spokesperson was annoyed. Why are you bothering me? And it's like, you know, we're trying to make sure you understand how this looks so that you can address it. And they barely did. We'll have to see if they do now. I, you, you hate to run a story that is accurate as it is might give an incomplete picture, but that's not on us. We tried and tried to get them to see th- what this looks like. And the readers read it exactly as that. Yeah. I mean, if there's more to it, we'd love to hear from Ronane on the record about this and be happy to report his explanation of 
how this contract came to be and why it's not what it appears to be. We wanted to report that last week, but he didn't make it possible. I I guess every public official has to learn this lesson the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, it is the hard way. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The new and powerful Civilian Police Commission in Cleveland is about to get started after voters changed the charter to empower it. What do members of the outgoing commission have to say to those who are about to take the reins? Lisa, fascinating story from Olivia Mitchell. Yeah, she talked to uh, two outgoing uh, police commission members, Gordon Freeman, who is a civil rights attorney, and Lewis Katz, who is a law professor emeritus at Case Western Reserve. And they had a message for new members. And basically, they say, be ready for a lot of challenges and be ready for resistance. So uh, Mr. Katz believes that Bibb wants police reform, but doubts that he'll put in the effort necessary for change. So he was pretty blunt. He said, more must be done to to comply with the federal consent decree of 2015. He says that Bibb has not implemented recommendations that the former commission gave him yet. And he said there it's, there it's not time to end the consent decree. He doesn't think it's time yet. Uh, Gordon Friedman, he said there are no immediate issues with the Cleveland Police Department other than the overwhelming resistance to reform. Um, he says they may be, there may be new personalities in the administration, but they really haven't changed that resistance attitude. It was a very cynical couple of interviews. These two guys mm-hmm. are really basically saying it's going to be uphill all the way, that this is this is not a city that's welcoming much needed reforms. And these are both two very credible people. And Katz has mm-hmm. been one of the one of the strongest voices in Northeast Ohio my entire time here. And they had concrete they were they were specifically and pointing out Justin Bibb. They don't think that he's welcoming of this. That was a surprise. Mm-hmm. That was very surprised. And of course, Mayor Bibb's office responded and said, "Well, we have made." progress on compliance. He said, you know, they created that civilian review review board. They have a police accountability team, but I don't know if we've seen any action from either of these entities yet. Yeah, well, the covering this commission is going to be like riding a roller coaster because there will be a great deal of resistance and they have to figure out what their lane is. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga Arts and Culture has been through the ringer a few times since it began distributing the grants taxpayers created to support artists. The arts community is vocal, diverse, and often unhappy. Reporter Steve Litt covers the latest controversy involving the agency, which appears to be fighting back pretty hard against criticism. Laura, what's the latest from Steve? There is some tension on how Cuyahoga Arts and Culture distributes their cigarette tax money to specifically to individual artists providing their grants. Artists don't get a whole lot of money from this group, which gets about $12 million right now from a cigarette tax. They hope to get more money because vaping products are now going to be included. But the artists themselves only get about 2 to 3% of the annual intake. The overwhelming majority of money, about 90%, goes to the big arts and institutions and organizations in the county. So 70-ish of them, the ones, a lot of them you've heard about, the museums, the big big organizations. So there was there was also some math error in accounting that the group sent out, which is not helping, and led to a conflict with Cool Cleveland in a post that they 
said that the arts and culture had shortchanged grant programs for individual artists by more than a million dollars between 2017 and 2022. So there's a lot of infighting. There's some math errors, and then there's some misunderstandings about what is getting distributed when. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) The Cool Cleveland was based on a certain amount being spent every year because right. at some point they had said they were spending it every year. They now say they didn't spend that money every year and it hasn't rolled over. The biggest harm they did to themselves is when they went on the offensive to attack this reporting, they put out a spreadsheet that had math errors in it. So it destroyed their credibility. And, and it took, and it wasn't like one of those ones where you get another email five minutes later saying, "Whoops, correction." They stood by it for a long time, which I think didn't help. And and you know, this is a public group. The money comes from taxpayers, from people who buy cigarettes. So there should be a lot of public ability to see what's going on, but. They've changed the way that they send out the grants. They use intermediaries now by CAC, and that's Spaces, Caramu House, Land Studio, some others. And and those get to choose who gets the grants. And, and right, this policy of not rolling over money from the next year when they don't spend it all one year, that's leading to people saying they misspent the money because it should have been spent. But it does seem seem kind of like a kerfuffle. Yeah, it's nice. the, the the artists seem like the vendors at the West Side Market. They're never going to be happy. Look, they they have in the past been really bad about transparency. We've we've slammed them repeatedly for the last four or five years. Though I, they haven't been like that. They have tried to make sure everybody is aware of what they're doing and where they're awarding the money, which I think is one of the reasons they're fighting back because they've worked pretty hard to be transparent. I'm not sure that this is more than what you said, just a kerfluffle. It may not be the kind of scandalous stuff that it was in the old days. We'll have to see if anything changes. Critics want to see grant making delegated to this one new entity that already exists and was designed to support the arts community called the Assembly for the Arts. And that was established in 2021. They gave out a bunch of ARPA money and CARES Act money for the pandemic. So I don't, I don't see this going without a fight, though. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Remember that movie a few years ago in which they had sloths working behind the counter of the BMV? It was just perfect. They moved in slow motion and infuriated the customers. Anybody who's dealt with Cleveland City Hall knows that it couldn't be much more like that situation. It's almost a cliche of government dysfunction. You can't get anything done. Justin Bibb campaigned on modernizing it. Layla, how is he going to do that? Uh, Well, Bibb introduced legislation to City Hall or City Council last week that if if they approve it would allow him to hire an accounting and consulting firm, Ernst & Young, to help design his plans uh, for City Hall modernization. And this, of course, would be making good on that primary campaign promise. Cleveland would pay up to $1.5 million for the work using $1,050,000 from its share of American Rescue Plan Act money and a $500,000 grant from the Gunn Foundation. This would take about 12 to 18 months to complete. The focus of this project will be on improving city services and departments typically thought of as those housed inside City Hall. So we're talking about building and housing, 
economic development, finance, and other departments that are supported by the general fund. This would not include police, fire, and EMS. Those are, obviously, we deal with those separately. It also wouldn't include those enterprise funds, the Cleveland Public Power, Water Department, or the airport. So Ernst & Young would create a 10-year strategy plan plus an organizational audit. The strategy plan would be all about creating goals for city departments and determining the best way to measure their success. The organizational audit, though, sounds like that's the secret sauce here. That's where they will figure out how to organize City Hall to better meet those goals and do a better job of delivering services you know, they're going to ask what processes are broken, what technologies need to be added, what staff need to be added, moved or shuffled. Bibb's chief, Bibb's chief of staff, Bradford Davies, said they, they really want to get away from reorganizing on a whim from administration to administration and instead create an organization that's basically a well-oiled machine. And, and that plan would be implemented over a 10-year period, which could very well be longer than Bibb has in office. But if it's working, hopefully a future mayor won't just toss it out. I, I don't think it's doable. I, I just, <laughs> after all these years of dealing with it, I think the only way to fix Cleveland City Hall is to create a countywide city in which you design it from the top down. Of course, we tried to do that with the county 12 years ago, and it's a disaster. I know. I was just going to say, fast forward 10 years when we're like, ah, get rid of this county, <laughs> get know, rid of this countywide government. We're we done with a, these jokers. We did a terrible <laughs> job there, but but others have done okay. I mean, you got Allegheny County, and somehow Summit County has a countywide government that knows what it's doing. Anyway, uh, uh, I, I, good luck, Justin Bibb. I think this is going to be a lot of money spent on something that goes on a shelf. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, what do the bankruptcy filings tell us about how the loss of pandemic-related assistance has affected a whole bunch of people? Well, it had an immediate negative effect. Um, chapter 13 bankruptcies for people who are above the poverty line, but they have a consistent income, jumped 30% nationally last year, according to federal court statistics. And that coincided with the end of pandemic-related assistance programs. Here in Ohio, we saw a th- 18% increase in Chapter 13, which is people usually use that to avoid a home foreclosure or a repossession of their car, among other things. In Cuyahoga County, we had 783 Chapter 13 filings last year. That's 27% increase, 15% higher in Franklin, and only 4.3% higher in Summit County. So uh, Richard Nemeth, who's president of the National Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys, says the end of the foreclosure moratorium was also a big factor in the jump in Chapter 13 filings. Because people are losing their houses and they're having to Mm -hmm. figure out how to do it. Depressing news. The pandemic assistance really did help people, but at some point it did have to end. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Monday episode. Happy spring. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. 